you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 19. Today our uh, passage of focus will be Luke chapter 19, verses 11, all the way down to verse 28. Uh, we will not make it that far this morning, but we will do what we can and pick up next week. Today is Palm Sunday. Uh, we celebrate the Lord Jesus and... Uh, his uh, coming into Jerusalem, I wish uh, we were there in our passage this morning, but we're a few weeks be before, uh, away from that. But regardless, we celebrate as the people that were waving the palm branches and uh, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. They had great expectation. Their expectation was misguided um, as they were desiring uh, quite a different type of king than Jesus came to be. But nonetheless, their expectation can remind us of the reality of the expectation that we have this morning in Christ, the Savior and the sinner of many. We come to celebrate and proclaim his sovereignty and his reign over our lives. We come to celebrate uh, him as our ruler, as the great wise king, the good king, who is orchestrating every single aspect of our lives for his glory and for our good. And so if you're here this morning and you're discouraged, be encouraged that God is doing exactly what he has planned to do in your life, regardless of how difficult it may be, and no matter how great the despair, he is doing it for your good. And most importantly, we rejoice that Jesus Christ will come again and we will be the true Israelites outside of the city, welcoming him, welcoming, welcoming him in to celebrate his rule and reign for all eternity. And so I invite you this morning to consider those things as we look at our passage in Luke chapter 19. This is a parable that Jesus gives. Uh, this is, we are on the cusp of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And so my plan was on Easter Sunday to cover that passage, but there's just so much wonderful truth this morning, I don't know that I can get through it all. So we will, uh, we will start in verse 11, and we will probably make it down to verse 19. So let me read this. It says, as they, uh, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that, that, that they might show, or that they might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina had made ten minas uh, more. And he said to them, well, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. 
And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to them, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I would have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has more, or I'll tell you that everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Well, I pray that the Spirit of the Lord um, has blessed your heart even with the reading of his word and, and understanding even from the hearing of these words, the, the clear message that Jesus is telling us uh, as he enters into Jerusalem. Uh, this is closely linked as, it, as all of our passages have been to the preceding passage. And so you can imagine uh, for the storyteller Luke, he's telling the story on the, uh, on the cusp of, of the story with Jesus and Zacchaeus. Matter of fact, he concludes that story with very important words. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now the very next words are descriptive words, historical words that mean quite a bit of, uh, of truth to us. And that is that the people that were are surrounding him, this crowd that was gathering with him, this, this, um, this a company of disciples even, were gathering and, and following him to Jerusalem. And as they began to walk with Christ and hear him and believe him, their mind was not going to a savior who would seek and save the lost sinners. He was coming to seek and save the lost Israel because they were the oppressed. They were the socially outcasted. They were the slaves of the Romans and the Greeks. And so for them, and this is what Luke tells us in verse 11, they were suspecting that as Jesus was walking to Jerusalem, that this was the entrance of the Messiah into the great holy city for him to conquer and slay and take control so that Israel would once again be magnified to prominence and prestige. And of course, in his omniscience and his wisdom, Jesus has to correct their understanding in this parable. And so in this parable today, Today, we're going to look at two aspects of three total. One, we want, we want to look at the forecasting of the kingdom by which Jesus gives us. Secondly, we're going to begin looking at the servants of the kingdom. And lastly, we'll finish this next week, uh, the end of the servants of the kingdom, and uh, finally, the opposition or the enemies of the kingdom, which Jesus covers in, these, uh, in this parable. And the point is simply this, it is, to, it is to look forward to 
and clearly reveal to his people the timeline of his kingdom and the work that he's going to accomplish on the cross. That's why the first point here is the forecast of the kingdom. Jesus in this parable is giving a, uh, a clear forecast, much like we were glued to our TVs last night, wondering what kind of severe weather we might receive here in the city. So Jesus is giving this forecast of the kingdom. And this is a very important passage, as, as all passages are, but a very important passage because in this passage, Jesus introduces new information about this forecast that has yet been truly emphasized by the Lord at this, at, to this point. And we will get to that in just a moment. But we'll see that, that these people need their understanding of Jesus corrected. They need their understanding of the kingdom uh, adjusted because they think that Jesus is walking into the city to claim his messianic rule by which political and, and social and national oppression will end and, and Israel will be elevated. Now in this parable, Jesus in all his wisdom is not only trying to teach the people this truth about the kingdom, but he's doing it in a very amazingly unique way. He's using the history and the news of that day. In other words, Jesus is telling this parable and connecting it to current events in the people of Rome of that day. You guys will remember uh, throughout the study of the Gospels that, the, that Caesar Augustus had put uh, Herod in charge of this region, Herod the Great, okay? And so Caesar has put Herod uh, in charge and Throughout Herod's reign, he promised his sons could rule over different regions of this uh, kingdom, he would call, when he died. Well, one of those sons, Herod had many sons, and there was great political turmoil to, um, to gain access to, uh, the, I guess, the inheritance of this land. But eventually, there was one of Herod's sons named Archelaus. And Archelaus was uh, promised the region of Samaria, Judea, and Idumea. Okay? So he's promised this, this land. Well, when Herod dies, he is officially the, or unofficially the king because it's been promised to him by his father. But he has to travel to Rome and stand before Caesar. And he has to be officially announced as the king of this land. Well, history tells us that when uh, Archelaus left Rome, and, or he left this region to go to Rome to stand before Caesar, there was a representative group of people from this region that followed him, and they stood before Caesar, and they demanded that this man not be their king. This is headline news. Now, that didn't help. It didn't work. Uh, Archelaus comes back to this area and 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 continues to lead, and he continues to, to rule as, as the king under Caesar. And yet Jesus is using this history to connect to these people in Jericho who are traveling with him through Jericho because this is headline news on their mind. 
And he's saying, that's a historical truth, but let me give you a spiritual truth in the form of a parable that's a greater truth than just this historical information. And he's, and he's doing it to tell the story of his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and second coming back upon this earth. See, in their minds, they're thinking, wait a minute, Jesus is telling this parable, this nobleman, that represents Archelaus, who went to Rome and left his country and now will return, and the people that went with him opposed him, uh, and, and Jesus is saying, no, that's not the story I'm telling you. That's connecting in your mind. Let me tell you a greater story. Let me tell you a story about myself and about my kingdom and what you should expect in this kingdom. And so the first aspect of the forecast that he gives us is the receiving of the kingdom. In the parable, he says that the nobleman, um, it says a nobleman went into a far country to what? To receive for himself a kingdom and then return. See, the aspect that Jesus wants these, uh, these, these disciples and, and he wants us to understand today is that when Jesus Christ came into the world, that the inauguration of the kingdom began. And that in those, uh, in those years and in those, uh, uh, those days of ministry, Jesus was exemplifying the authority that God the Father had given him as the eternal son. That the Father had literally passed the authority and commanded the authority to his son to demonstrate and reflect in the world so that we might see God that we might see his authority, that we might see his power and his majesty and his omniscience and omnipotence, that we might see those, th those things through the God-man. But all throughout Jesus' ministry, he continually referred to the fact that the Father had passed down the authority to the Son, thus connecting us to not only believe in Jesus as the, as the Son of God, but that to, to confirm that he is God in the flesh. And Jesus so interestingly connects that because Archelaus went to Rome and there Caesar is over Rome, an evil king appointing a lesser king over this, over this area. Both of them, uh, Archelaus really didn't have full power. He was still under the, uh, the rule of the, of the wicked Caesar. But, but a, a greater truth in this is that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, submitted to the uh, eternal Father of the, the first person of the Trinity. And, and although they are co-equal, he showed submission on this earth and he made statements like in John chapter 5 that the Father judges no one but gives all judgment to the Son. That, my, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. So what's interesting about this is that we preach the idea that Jesus is sovereign and, and in control of all things, and that is true. Jesus, as a babe in the manger, came in, in, in sovereignty, but he had stepped away from glory. He had stepped away from the worship of heaven. And so the aspect that, that we uh, want to focus on is that even though Jesus is uh, fully God and fully man, he is fully sovereign, and yet there is an aspect of Jesus in his, in his humanity and in his submission to the eternal Father where he has to receive the kingdom. 
And this is the process of his life on earth. He is receiving this kingdom. And we also must be reminded that in Jesus receiving the kingdom, he is also showing us that he is the promised Messiah. Because in Daniel chapter 7, the great famous messianic passage, we're told that the Son of Man will receive from the Ancient of Days the dominion and the glory and the kingdom. That he will receive it. That all peoples and nations and languages will serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. So we need to make no mistake that as Jesus came as both uh, fully God and fully man, there was an important aspect to his kingdom that he must receive. And we could say that he uh, consummated that reception when he died on the cross, was buried, rose from the grave in glory, and ascended to heaven and sat at the right hand of God. That's the full consummation of that reception. Because in sitting at the right hand of God, he is uh, completely and totally sitting there as both God and man in the new body of flesh that he's been given after his resurrection, sitting in the place of honor that he had, been, uh, that he had received uh, from the Father. And so, make no mistake, Jesus is not talking about a Roman ruler, he's talking about his rule that he had to receive. That's why in Philippians, Paul says that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was important for the Father to acknowledge to all the people uh, in the, the time of Christ and in the history of the church that Jesus Christ set apart, or the Father set apart his son to be recognized as the king of this kingdom and the ruler and the judge of all. But in this parable, there's not just uh, leaving. The nobleman leaves to receive this kingdom, right? So there is a, there is a receiving and then there's a leaving, and the leaving is very important because in the aspect of Jesus communicating to his disciples, he has gone so far as to communicate to them very clearly that, listen, guys, there's going to come a time where I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die at the hands of evil men and I'm going to be buried and I'm going to raise on the, rise on the third day. That's up to the point of, of full description. He's given that to them now uh, over three times. He's described his death. He described his resurrection. But he has yet to fully describe his leaving. He's going to leave them. Wait, wait a minute, Jesus. I mean, imagine Peter, when, when Jesus says that he's going to die, and, and what did Peter do? He rebuked Jesus. He argued with Jesus. Now Jesus is in this form of a parable preparing them to understand that in the parable of this nobleman that the nobleman leaves to receive the kingdom, thus signifying Jesus leaving, that it was his plan to die and to ascend into this earth and to leave. And of course he alludes to that very, very generally, but never this specifically up to this point. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going away and you will seek me. I'm sorry, he says this to the Pharisees. 
uh, he says, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now his disciples heard him say that, but he was speaking to the Pharisees saying, listen, I'm going to be with the father. You're not going to be able to come with me. And then, of course, the very famous funeral sermon text that we all hear, John chapter 14, let your heart not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going, he says to his disciples. Now, this is after the fact in John chapter 14. Jesus says that in John chapter 14 when he's in Jerusalem. So imagine some truth that we understand and know quite clearly. Jesus left. He ascended. He went to heaven. Imagine the news of this parable to the disciples. And yet it was purposeful for our text today to understand the, nece- the necessity of Jesus receiving the kingdom, but also leaving to go receive the kingdom. Because in that leaving, we see in history the church expands. The church grows rapidly. That mustard seed becomes a plant, and it grows exponentially. Because... We're also told, and finally in this promise, that as Jesus is receiving the kingdom and as he's leaving, we see that as the nobleman does, he comes back, he returns. So just in that one sentence, we have this great theological truth that Jesus is really laying out for uh, his people to understand, and most of them weren't going to understand, but we connect to this truth that Jesus is coming again. This is the second coming. This is the introduction of that great truth that Jesus has not forsaken us. And we are in that time now in history between his leaving and his coming. That we are in that time where we are uh, of great expectation that Jesus is returning again. And we are filled with hope and we are filled with joy and we are filled with longing, waiting for Jesus to come. Because we have the full revelation of God. We understand now what the Old Testament prophets had not necessarily expressed. So the Jews thought that when the Messiah came, it would be one coming. And Jesus says, no, let me, let me help you understand this more fully. It's, it's actually going to, I'm going to come in, in inauguration, in my incarnation, but I'm also going to come again for consummation. I'm going to fulfill and complete all that has been stated. And so Hebrews chapter 9 reminds us what? So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Now, why is this important? Well, because what is Jesus about to do? What is Jesus about to accomplish in Jerusalem? What would be the greatest information that he could share with his people, his followers, the people that would lead the church, then let me give you the timeline, right? Remember that time your parents left you at home for the first time and they went on a trip by themselves 
and they give you all that detailed information. Now, this is where we're going to be, and this is the phone number, and this is the address, and, and, and this is when we're coming home, and, and you just know all this important information. And Jesus is laying this out in this parable. Why? One, because he was correcting their understanding of what was about to happen. And two, he was giving them a fuller revelation of all the redemptive plan of God that had been planned before the foundation of the world. This is not an audible. This is not some change of plan. This is what had been in, in, enacted for Jesus to ascend to heaven after his resurrection, for the church to grow and expand in the power of the Spirit and, and to reach, to take the gospel to the nations, and then Jesus will come again. That was always the plan. And so the, the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is how are we living in light of those two moments of history, the leaving of Christ and the return of Christ? How are we living? There is such a danger today for every follower of Jesus Christ to forget what lies ahead of us. Matter of fact, we can enjoy this world so much that we lose sight of the longing of his return. The way I think of this is, is moms, uh, imagine if for a moment you and your children are at the airport waiting on your husband to return from this long trip. And while away, your husband was off maybe on a business trip, on a mission trip, and it was in a strenuous time alone with your kids, keeping the home together. Maybe, maybe uh, uh, the emotional strain of being separated from your loved one, dealing with the discipline of the family. And so you sit there in the lounge of the, ho of the uh, airport waiting on your husband's delayed flight. And let me ask you, is there anything in the airport at that moment that is more important or more entertaining to you that would distract you from the focus of that man that you love coming home? Is there anything that you would go, hey, mom, let's go to the, let's go to the, the, um, the store over here and let's just let's look at all the snacks and all the magazines and let's just distract our minds with this and let's just forget about the fact that our dad's coming home or your husband's coming home. That would be silly. Because in the truth of the matter is that it is unchristian for our hearts to disregard the return of Christ in exchange for the life of the here and now. Your new heart in Jesus has been knitted together to a new home, a better place. And the Spirit of God grafts our new heart to that new home. That's why the Bible calls us exiles. It calls us sojourners. We are pilgrims on a journey in this world because we don't belong to this world. Hebrews chapter 11 the writer is talking about the, the, the roll call of faith, as you remember. And he says, all these died in faith. Abraham, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out of, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The writer of Hebrews is is speaking through the history of the Old Testament and the way that the Israelites yearned and longed for the promise of the promised land to come to fruition, a land of blessing, a land of, of, of living under the care and provision of God, no longer under the oppression of, of, of other nations. And all that was a foreshadowing of the true longing that we have in Christ. That no matter how difficult this world is that we don't belong to, we have a longing to look forward to Christ's return when we will be united and experience the true promised land. That is all those who live by faith in Christ alone. And so that is the returning aspect of this parable that should draw our hearts and draw our minds to find hope and encouragement in what Jesus is sharing this morning. That this nobleman leaves to receive a kingdom and then returns. And what does he do before he leaves? Well, it says he calls 10 of his servants, verse 13, and he gives them 10 minutes and he says to them, engage in business until I come. Engage in business until I come. See, the, the importance of this passage this morning is that not only does it forecast the kingdom for us, but it gives us an understanding of how we ought to live as the church in between the time of Jesus leaving and Jesus returning. And it's simple with this command, engage in business. Engage in business. This is what the servants of the kingdom do. They engage in business. Now, a couple things that are important for us to understand. The mina was a, 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 a value of currency that represented 100 days of wages. So in other words, we could say from the perspective of Jesus in this parable that he is referencing a, a value of one mina, which was equivalent to 100 Greek drachmas or 100 days of wages. Now that may sound familiar because the drachma was equal to the denarius. So the drachma was Greek money and the denarius was Roman money. And they both represented a day's wage. Well, the mina was 100 Greek drachmas or 100 days wages. So if we're going to try to break this up with some rough equivalency, we'll say it this way. In, this, in the scope of U.S. currency, we could say that this mina represented somewhere around $56,000. If you take a day's wage, which would be eight hours a day, plus the minimum wage, you're going to get somewhere around $56 a day times 100 days or 10 mina, times 10 minas, so that'd be $56,000. So imagine, there's 10 servants, everyone gets the equivalent of somewhere around $50,000 to invest. 
Now, why is that important? Well, because the, Jesus is giving this example to help us understand that the investment that he gives in this parable is invaluable. There's no special reference to 10 or, or 10 people. There, there's, there, we're not trying to read into the numbers. We're trying to see that, that 10 minas is a whole lot of money. And it represents an invaluable investment that this nobleman gives to his servants. And what does he say? Take this that I'm giving you. You didn't earn this money. It doesn't belong to you. I'm giving this money to you freely. Why? So that you can invest it and bring back a return, a profit. And folks, that invaluable investment of the kingdom is the gospel. That invaluable investment that we have is Jesus, the living word of God. And we are given this investment between the time of Jesus leaving and Jesus returning. And we're given this incredible investment to do what? To make a profit. To expand the kingdom. Not to make a profit for ourselves. Because you'll notice that these servants had to return whatever was given that they made off this money. They returned it all back to the king. It wasn't theirs. It's not our gospel. It's the gospel that we believed in, but it's the message of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And it's the investment that we're supposed to take and understand, first of all, that it's invaluable, it's priceless. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter, according to his great mercy, he calls us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we have to ask ourselves, are we engaging in the business of the kingdom until Christ returns? And, and, and a further question is, do we consider the gospel as the invaluable investment that has been entrusted to us? I was, in, I was convicted this week to consider the fact that our evaluation, my evaluation of the treasure of the gospel is evidenced by how I seek to share it with other people. If I really consider it a treasure, then I will share it with my friends and my family. If it's a treasure. If it's old ketchup in the refrigerator, I'm just tossing it out. It's gross. I don't like ketchup anyway. If it's some trinket that my grandmother gave me that uh, I remember my, she gave me this wooden box to keep all my jewelry in. I'm like, Nanny, I appreciate that. I don't really wear jewelry, but I'll find something to do with it. By the way, I was like seven. It, it was important to me. It, it was from my grandmother, but, but it, it served no purpose to me. It wasn't a treasure. Is the gospel a treasure to us? priceless and meaningful above and beyond all the trivialities that we might encounter on this earth. But not only that, but it not only talks about the invaluable investment, but the purposeful path. When he's telling us to engage in business, he's reminding that we don't sit around idly 
Because idleness in the kingdom is not acceptable to the master. Engaging in business of the kingdom is being intentional to serve the kingdom with that priceless message. That we are strategically making disciples for the expansion of his kingdom. Matter of fact, we could say that idleness with the kingdom expansion is fruitless and comes with damning consequences, which we'll see. The one responsibility given to the servants in this parable as the king leaves is not, listen, protect the kingdom. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say fortify the wall. He says, engage in business. And similarly, Jesus on the mountain, after he raises from the dead, gathers his disciples and says what? Engage in kingdom business. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And of course, as we are challenged to not only value the investment that God's given us, but to be purposeful with it. The negative aspect of that is is to turn away from those things that consume our earthly loves and values. In other words, are we being so consumed with intentionality toward earthly pursuits that we are distracted from intentionality toward heavenly pursuits? Listen, sports are great. Hobbies are beneficial. Retirement is a blessing. But if our time is consumed with these things and are not being leveraged with the expansion of God's kingdom, then I believe God's timing is not being stewarded well. It's his time that he's given us. It's his time that he's given me. And if I'm not using the things of my life, my children, my wife, my job, all these things, if I'm not centering those things on the gospel, if I'm sitting idly by, then I don't think I'm using the time that God's given me appropriately. I'm not being purposeful. So consider the invaluable investment, the purposeful path, and lastly, the timely treasure. Because the nobleman clearly says to him, to these people, engage in business until I come. Simply, the treasure has a time limit. The gospel, although its effects are lasting for all eternity, the reception of the gospel has a shelf life. It expires. We consider The fact that when Jesus returns upon this earth, there will no longer be an opportunity to share this invaluable investment with other people. We will not have a chance. They will not have a chance to take advantage of that forgiveness, of that reconciliation, of that freedom from condemnation that we all enjoy. So as faithful servants, 
of the kingdom, we are called and commanded in this passage through this parable to engage in kingdom business. But there's also another important truth that as faithful servants who engage in kingdom business, we will see varying levels of kingdom fruit. Our efforts, although faithful, are oftentimes blessed with a varying level of of results. There could be a, and I know this is going to be difficult to understand or, or imagine, but let's say there's a clone of me in another state in the same amount of ministry, in the same amount of of, of uh, historical milestones that this person went through the same uh, type of ministry and 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 calling and things like I did and we both serve faithfully over these same amount of years same amount of days and and there's n- no guarantee that our ministries will be the same receive the same amount of fruitfulness there will be varying levels of fruitfulness and that's what we see in verses 15 through 18. Now the nobleman returns, having received the kingdom. He orders the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know, or yeah, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina gave, your mina made 10 minas. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful and very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your, your mina has made five minas. And he said, you are to be over five cities. See, the aspect of this is, is simply this. Be faithful to kingdom business. Be obedient to invest and trust that the, that the obedience to invest belongs to the individual believer, but the fruit of the investment belongs to God. He brings the increase. To say it another way, as my former pastor instructed me, Nathan, if you take focus of the quality of your ministry, God will sovereignly, sovereignly take care of the quantity of it. If you trust in God and, 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 and stay uh, humble and stay focused on the depth of your ministry, God will take care of the breadth of it. It's on his timing. It's on his purposes. And I understand that that might mean a tiny church for as long as we minister here. We're not seeking to be a mega church. We're seeking to be a faithful church. We're seeking to be a a church that is willing to be obedient, to invest in what God has left us with, entrusted us with the gospel, given us the most valuable information and news that reflects his eternal son, and he has entrusted that to us so that people can be freed from their sins. He has given us that responsibility, and we must be faithful. Reminds me of the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. That the good soil, the seed that fell in the good soil, reflected the, the man who hears the word and he understands it and he indeed bears fruit and yields it. What? In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and another 30. 
varying levels of fruitfulness. So listen, we don't need to look to the Apostle Paul and consider that everything, that, or to consider that everyone's called to be a missionary to multiple cities across a vast region with multiple church plants and most likely thousands of new disciples. That doesn't need to be our model. Our model needs to be faithfulness. Our model needs to start with a realistic vision of one person that we impact with the gospel. Matter of fact, I would encourage you to put a realistic goal before you so that you are not swallow up with, swallowed up with unrealistic goals. Put a realistic goal and be faithful to that one goal, one person. If every person in this church that's a member of redemption made a commitment for one year to disciple an unbeliever, share the gospel with them, pray for their salvation, love them, care for them, which is discipleship, praying that God would save them and make them a disciple. You understand that the first year, by God's grace, we could see 40 members of redemption see 40 new converts. And that those 40 would be added to 80, and those 80 members in year two could possibly see 80 new hearts changed for the gospel. And those, that, those two groups of 80 now would be 160 in year three, and then 330 in year four, and then 660 in year five. Until finally after year five, when year six begins, over a thousand disciples of Jesus could be made for one person being faithful. That's how God spread his church through all of history. And I dare or warn us not to say, oh, well, Nathan, that's just, you know, you're dreaming. No, I, I believe that the power of God, if we're faithful, he will bring fruit. He's promised to bring fruit. It's according to his timing, but he will bring fruit if we do what we are called to do and we engage in the business of ministry. That we're faithful to say, Lord, you have entrusted this gift to me. You've entrusted, entrusted this treasure to me. And I'm going to be faithful to take it out and to do what you've called me to do. Because time is limited, but it's priceless and it's worthwhile doing. And I'm going to do it faithfully until you return. And I'm going to turn away from the, the cares of this world that might distract me. Even if it causes me to sacrifice the things that my earthly heart desires, I'm going to turn away from those things for the sake of the glory of the kingdom and the expansion of the gospel. And I'm going to stop right there with a, and conclude with a quote from Jonathan Edwards who says, the joy of a Christian not only arises in knowing and viewing, but also in doing not only in apprehending God, but also in doing for God. For he loves God, not only with a love of complacence, but with a love of benevolence also. 
And as a love of complacence delights in beholding, so does a love of benevolence delights in doing for the object beloved. The the peace and the pleasure which the Christian has in these things is far better and more desirable than the pleasures that this world can afford. 